to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the player himself, Benny Scala. Benny, far too often, it seems like we, we talk about having to do shows like this. Um, how you doing, buddy? Well, Dan, to quote the great Barry Gibb, whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive. And I, I've been called both of those. <laughs> well, it's better than better than some of the stuff we call you on the show. but True. Or behind your back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Benny... Um, uh, you, you, you heard him chime in with a, gu- a good liner. Um, obviously, we're here tonight. Uh, we're recording this. It's Tuesday, February 27th. The news broke yesterday, and the wrestling world's talking about it today, the the passing of the late, great Ole Anderson. Um, so why don't you tell everybody, introduce who we brought with us, and uh, we'll get right to, because that's the, the theme tonight. We're going to take a really good look at his uh, the life and legacy. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was thinking I had to do this intro, and I, I, I go back to the disclaimer on the bottom of uh, all the wrestling posters, which said, uh, card subject to change without notice. So we had a scheduled guest, Renee Koloff, <clears throat> widow of the great Ivan Koloff, the Russian bear. Uh, she's unfortunately a bit under the weather, and she was unable to appear tonight. And, you know, last night we were going back and forth trying to pick out a topic uh, for tonight's show, and then we were sudden, you know, very saddened to learn of the death of the, uh, the original rock. Al the Rock Rogowski. Hopefully, I'm saying his last name right. But uh, and if you're not familiar with the name, I'm you know I'm sure his other alias, Ole Anderson, conjures up many great wrestling memories. And here to assist us is our many-time guest, a great wrestling historian, and as well as a great friend, George Shire. George, welcome back. Hey guys, I am glad to be back. I'm glad that uh, you reached out to me today, and uh, I was I was saddened yesterday. Uh, we lost another, in my opinion, we lost one of the best uh, wrestling minds of of the era, and that was Ole Anderson, real name Alan Rogowski. And no, no argument there. I mean, we're going to get into obviously the the, like I said, the life and legacy. Benny, when he introduces various guests or we talk about guests, he always talks about people with many hats and slashes. You know, writer slash actor slash and and. Really, I, I don't think Oli gets enough credit for all the backstage, you know, how much he did in the business besides just being a good in-ring talent. But, was, I mean, obviously what we're going to get all kinds of stuff um, on that. But I wanted to, when we talked, George, uh, earlier today, um, you had mentioned, you said you were at some of his first matches in uh, 1967. He was trained by Vern Gagne and Dick the Bruiser. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, uh, how's the line go? Uh, uh, there isn't a man alive I can't lick. <laughs> yeah, I think I can run. I think I could outran the guy though, so I wouldn't have been subject to that. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. I think I think we would have been fine on that one. But um, I was kind of hoping you, because obviously, you know, you're 
you've such a history of of that territory and Ganya and 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 everything. Kind of go into that the early one, two kind of two parts. One sort of talk about the early days of Ole Anderson, and we've had you on before to to look at very you know we talked about various talent. Was was that something when you're seeing? I say young kid. Ole Anderson was born old and angry, but um, when you see him in, in we'll 60- touch on that. When you see him in 67, was it like this guy's got it and you just knew right away you were seeing something special? The answer to that is yes. Um, Rock Rogowski, uh, Al Rogowski debuted in Minneapolis and his his debut, surprisingly enough, went uh, one unannounced on the wrestling card that he was going to be on. He just ended up showing up on the card coming out of Ganya's camp. Now, I think you guys remember, I've made comments over the years, that if we were to look at the landscape of professional wrestling in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and look at the the amount of talent that Vern Gagne brought into the business, and all of that talent weren't, you know, didn't happen, how different the landscape of wrestling would look. I say that because um, I've made a list in the past, Vern trained close to 150 wrestlers wow. over his career. And, and people don't realize some of the names that he, he, he worked with. Um, you know, he had, he had some training that he gave to, believe it or not, Pat O'Connor. When Pat O'Connor came over here from New Zealand way back in the 50s. And Vern trained Dick the Bruiser along with Joe Pazendak, who worked with Dick the Bruiser. So you talk about some of those really old names and you go, wow, just those two names alone, Pat O'Connor and Dick the Bruiser, how different wrestling would look. But um, in the 60s, the early 60s, Vern wasn't running training camps or anything. He was doing uh, maybe once a year or every other year he would take a guy, maybe two, but usually just one guy he, he had looked at him and thought he could do something and train him. And he was bringing guys into the business. He trained Gene Anderson, who was from South St. Paul, Minnesota, a legitimate Minnesotan. And Vern trained him for the pro ranks in 1960-61. Gene stayed here in the AWA for the first half of the 60s. And many times when Vern would get together and train someone, Gene Anderson would assist Vern in the training. So guys like Bob Rasmussen, um, I don't know, I can't think of a couple of a couple more, but they, they had some early touches of Gene Anderson's training along with Vern. So we get to 1965, and Vern had trained a guy named Larry Hainemi. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, Larry Hainemi was a St. Cloud uh, graduate, a university graduate, and he come into the ring, and he was billed as Larry Hainemi. I looked at him, and I, I saw talent. But the difference with him was that he still looked a little green in his earliest matches, and I saw him progress, and I saw him, be, you know, he caught on quickly. The interesting thing about Larry in his first matches for the first year or so after Larry debuted, if you look at AWA results – in most every town and often, his opponent was Gene Anderson. And 
Larry and I have actually talked about that. Um, Vern was using Gene to just continue to train Larry in the ring and to make him, you know, better than he was. So we get to 1966, and Larry had been in the business for about a year now. Um, Vern had contacted the Nashville promoter, Nick Goulas, and said, I got a couple of guys here that I'd like to send down to you, and that was Gene and Larry. So I'd like to send them down to you. They went down to Tennessee. Um, Goulas didn't know what to do with them. And it just wasn't working out. But then they went to the Carolinas and uh, hooked up with Jim Crockett. And this goes into 1966-67 range. And Larry became Lars' brother, Lars. And we had the Anderson brothers, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. And it really was the start of a dynamic tag team. Because then for the next almost two years, um, Gene and Lars in the South Atlanta, in the Carolinas, they they were one of the hottest tag teams in the business and holding the titles down there and stuff. Well, so that brings us to 1967 in the later part. And uh, Vern's latest trainee is a guy named Al Rogowski, Alan Rogowski. He too was from St. Cloud and he actually knew Lars Anderson. They, they had come in contact with one another. And Vern trained him, brought him into the ring. Now, to answer your question, when you said, do you, do you recognize this guy had a talent right away? The very first time I saw Rock Rogowski, it was in August of 1967. He showed up on a card. Ironically enough, he was billed not on the card at all. He just was an opponent that showed up. Um, he was billed as Brute Rogowski. Now, you had to see a picture. You had to see Rogowski in those very early times. If you remember what the Crusher or the Bruiser looked like in, those, in the 60s, Rogowski resembled them body-wise. He had the blonde crew cut. Um, he, he definitely, and he was billed as Brute in his first match. Vern, now this came from Ole himself later on. He told me that Vern had quickly changed it from Brute to Rock because many times over the course of Dick the Bruiser's career, he was referred to at times as a Brute, the Brute, and the Brute Dick the Bruiser and that sort of thing. And uh, Ole said Vern felt that he didn't want to step on Bruiser's toes because they were friends on you know in the business. And so he became Rock Rogowski. Now, in his first matches, because of his build, because of his look, and he definitely, I was in 1967, I would have been 16 years old. I looked at him and he was one of those guys that I just, I liked him. I liked what I saw. He looked, he didn't look like he was starting in the business for the first time. He, he looked like he was polished. So, yes, I felt there was a talent there. And Vern gave him an immediate push. He put him together with Cowboy Bill Watts, who was uh, really an over-the-top babyface here in 1967. He had come here a couple of months earlier, uh, August. And uh, Vern put him in a tag team together. 
and they had some high-profile tag matches. Watts Rogowski battled Harley Race and Hard-Boiled Haggerty in some matches around the horn. And also they got title shots against the tag team champs at the time, Mitsu Arakawa and Dr. Moto. So uh, Rock was given a push. Now, it was interesting because when they first introduced him as Rock Rogowski, on most of the programs right after that, they built they were billing him simply as The Rock. So it was Bill Watts and The Rock. And uh, he was reported in the, in the programs as being, this was the verbiage, he's reported to be, re, he's reported to be related to the Crusher and Dick the Bruiser. And they did it basically because of his look. So flash forward, 1968, Rock is going to go on the road. And he went down, and it was Gene and Lars in uh, Atlanta who had mentioned to Crockett that, you know, what if we were to bring in another brother? You know, what do you think of that idea? You know, you got two Andersons and we're the wrecking crew. What if we got a brother? And that's where Brother Ole came in. The, the, the story is great because Vern sent Rock down there to uh, the Carolinas. Ole, or G, um, sorry, Lars Anderson picked him up from the airport when uh, Rock got into town. And he told Rock, he said, uh, you're going to be our brother. And uh, Rogowski says, well, what, am, what are you going to call me? And uh, Lars says, you're going to be Ole. And Rock goes, what the hell's an Ole? <laughs> but anyway, Ole Anderson. And he got he made his debut as the third Anderson brother. Now, part of this was is because Lars, after about a year when they were the three of them together down there in various combinations, but mostly six mans or where one would, you know, interfere in the tag match that the other two were in. Um, Lars wanted to come back home, meaning Minnesota, because he was from here. And uh, so in 1969, he came back home and then it was Gene and Ole. Uh, as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. So ironically, Lars doesn't get as much credit as he probably deserves because he was one of the founding members. But um, that's that's how it uh, all came down. And that was the start of the Anderson family. Nice. George, I have a quick question. Yeah. Um, I went you know, doing some research for the show. Uh, you the first match I saw him was uh, August 19th, 1967. So that sounds about right. But according to what I saw, um, he actually defeated Bob Orton Sr. to win the Midwest Heavyweight title. I had never heard of that title before. The Midwest Heavyweight title was in Omaha. Joe, okay. Joe Dusek, who was the Omaha promoter, and they worked for the uh, AWA for Vern. What the deal was there is Joe Dusick used a lot of talent from the Central States Territory, and he also used some of Vern's guys. So in 1970, uh, Rock Rogowski had actually come home. He had family here, and he had come home and spent some time in the Omaha Territory as Rock Rogowski again. So he had went from Ole back to Rock, but, you know, in the kayfabe days, days nobody knew that. And he actually did get a really good push in 1970 in Omaha. He was teamed with uh, 
They actually had a, an unholy trio in Omaha. It was Rock, The Claw, which was wrestler Tom Andrews under a mask wrestling as The Claw, and Ox Baker. So kind of an oddity in itself, but they were a trio that definitely switched off in tags and interfered and um and rock and baker held the tag team midwest tag team title and rock was also midwest heavyweight champion for a for a brief moment in time but it was only a title recognized in omaha or in nebraska i shouldn't say just omaha because nebraska ran cards in a lot of cities omaha and lincoln being their top cities and then they had other ones uh Beatrice, I think it is, Nebraska and Vermilion, um, a lot of other smaller towns they ran. So they had Midwest champions. So, yeah, he was. But he beat Orton Sr., and that was he was in the business, I think, all of two months when he did that. Yep. Now, I remember Bob Orton Sr. coming into the WWF the next year as Rocky Fitzpatrick, and he was a pretty big deal then. So, I mean, for a guy with such a limited amount of experience, in two months to beat a guy like that, I guess, you know, Vern must have saw a big future in him as well. Oh, he did. And you got to remember that Vern and Orton, Bob Orton Sr., I mean, they had been friends for years. Orton had appeared on AWA cards. When I say AWA, I'm talking outside of Omaha now, the rest of the AWA. And uh, a lot of respect for one another. But Orton, you know, he was a true professional. He, he was on his way out from Omaha, he's willing to do the job, you know, and that's what a lot of these guys did on their way out. What better to put somebody over that's got the talent? And Rock did. He, he I, you know, I tell you what, yes, he was only in the business for, you know, a year, two years, three years. The guy just had it. You believed him. And, and that was the whole story. If you believed him in that era, you know, and he, he had it. So, yeah, he did win the title from Bob Orton. And there was no junior at that time, so the right the, the results, in my opinion, just always show Bob Orton because junior hadn't started wrestling yet. <laughs> Excuse me. Go ahead, Ben. No, and then I, I, think, I think, he think he won it again, again in uh, 1970 or uh, early 71. He beat uh, Tex McKenzie, who was another you know, pretty big talent. Yeah, well... You know, in that time frame, and nothing against Tex McKenzie, but already by that time, um, Rock would have probably been a better draw than Tex was. Uh, McKenzie was uh, a good draw. I'm never going to take that away from him. But most wrestlers that were around Tex, they would tell you he was the clumsiest guy in the ring. He, he just, he was awkward. And I saw him wrestle. He, he just, he was a big, tall dude. And he just he just didn't have I don't know if you call it poise or or he just didn't have the fluid motion about him he he appeared to be awkward clumsy and that was Tex and but he he was a draw people loved seeing him he worked in the AWA too and Vern used him in uh, boy 66 67 he was here um, Red Bastine once told me a story about him and Tex they were good friends and they traveled together for a long time. And Tex or Vern, uh, Red told me, he says, you know, we come to the ring and he says, you know, I come up to the I come up the ring steps. I 
jump over the top rope and come into the ring. And, and then here comes Tex right behind me. And I don't know what he was trying to do, but he tripped and fell and ended up on the floor before he could get into the ring. And he says it just was Tex. He, he was interesting. But, yeah, he didn't have uh, – his career was mostly – boy, I hate to say that – as a more of an attraction wrestler because he never really had long stays in any territories where, you know, he was the guy they put on top. But a good a good, uh, a good worker. Well, well speak, speak, speaking speak of transition, transition. – <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. So, so June, June 1968, 1968, he's with the Mid-Atlantic Territory. And, uh, and uh, sorry, sorry, sound, sound issue, issue here. here. Give me one Give second. Me I apologize. apologize. You guys hearing an, hearing an echo? No. Okay. There. That's better. All right. All right. Uh, June uh, 1968. So he's in Mid-Atlantic, and he starts teaming with his cousin Gene Anderson. Or excuse me, uh, yeah, teaming with his cousin Gene Anderson. By January 1969, you were talking about them being for uh, you know going for different titles. They win the NWA Southern Tag Titles. Uh, Ole goes back to the AWA in this November 1970, and what you were talking about defeats Tex McKenzie, wins the champion the Midwest Heavyweight Championship a second time. 1971, he, he goes to Florida, and about uh, a year later, he resurfaces, or excuse me, he services again in Mid-Atlantic, uh, where he'll remain for a majority of his career. It's it look kind, kind of doing some lookup. Um, that that gap, that that 19, late 1970, 71, his time in Florida before he pops up in Mid-Atlantic and really, uh, you know, sort of becomes what a lot of a lot of fans remember. Uh, what was, you know, he, his kind of transition there, his time in Florida almost seems like a footnote. Well, I think the, the Florida was more of a footnote, but you have to remember that that time frame you talk about him coming back to Omaha, to, he actually appeared on a couple of Minneapolis cards when he was working Omaha, but he, he wasn't working Minneapolis. So he showed up on a couple of cards. And like I say, it was usually because he was here visiting his family because his family lived here. And he, um, the Florida thing probably was more of a, a stopover. He, he had some success there, but it usually was going to be with Gene. That's, that's where the niche was outside of the Omaha territory. And you mentioned a minute ago that he was billed as a cousin. He was billed as a brother. Gene okay. and Ole were always brothers. So was Lars and Gene and Ole. They were always brothers. That's what you were um, saying earlier about him, Ole, being the third brother. Right. Yeah. Okay. Ole's the, Ole was the third. The interesting thing was, is think about this. Ole and, or uh, Ole just passed away now. He's at 81. Mm -hmm. uh, so he definitely would be the youngest of those brothers. But Gene and Lars were actually born in the same year. And Lars is 85. And so Gene would be 85 if, if he were still with us. But he left us early. He left back in... Uh, Boy, was it 91? Uh, Gene passed away. And uh, the, the interesting thing about the Andersons, you know, there's where the legacy starts. They created tag team wrestling in a way, and Lars and I were talking, Larry Hainimi and I were talking about this. And fans that followed the Andersons will understand what I'm saying. They were able, as a team, to what they called divide the ring in half, mm -hmm. where they would keep the opponent. They were so good at keeping their opponent on their side of the ring and working him over, 
while the referee was busy trying to keep the other baby face out of the ring to come in and help his partner. And they did it. They did. I mean, this was a tag team practice for most tag teams, but Gene and Lars and then later Ole and Gene, they did it better than anyone. You could watch a whole 45 minute match and you'd literally, it was almost like there was a wall in the middle of the ring from their corner to the opponent's corner. And they were so good at just hiding stuff from the ref, you know, while he was busy trying to keep the other guy out or whatever he was doing. He was doing his job all the time. That's the good part of it. But Gene and Ollie had that science and so did Gene and Lars. And the other thing about him is Gene wasn't as articulate on doing interviews. He didn't have that, that skill. Um, so the best part of it was is that both with Lars and with uh, Oli, you had a mouthpiece that, man, they could irritate people. Man, they and, and they weren't always the shouting, screaming, growling villain spitting all over you. They, they were more to the point. And you, you just wanted to see Lars and, and Oli and, of course, Gene because of it. You wanted to see them get their butts kicked. So it was just a sweet formula. And uh, I was watching an interview last night, a YouTube interview that Oli was doing. And I just, I kind of sat back and I was at marveling again. I thought, man, that guy was gold on the mic. You know, just the way he talked, delivered it. And we should point out that when uh, Rock was in Omaha, he was billed as being Dick the Bruiser's nephew. Remember I told you originally they said he was right. reported to be related to the Crusher and the Bruiser. And the Crusher and the Bruiser were always cousins. Not really, but they were cousins. And so in the very beginning, Rock had a, a, a family lineage to Crusher and Bruiser, but then he was Bruiser's nephew as Rock. And then when he, of course... Obviously, he figured out Bruiser wasn't a real relative. He went down and became a brother to Gene and uh, Lars. And uh, it was also interesting because as his career pro progressed, he, um, he ended up teaming up with Arn Anderson, who was another Minnesota guy, by the way. And ironically, he never worked for the AWA, and Vern never – he wasn't trained by Vern or anything, but he never worked uh, in Minneapolis. When I say Minneapolis, I'm talking AWA. Yeah, and uh, But he was built, you know, he wrestled originally as Marty Lundy, his real name, and then he became Arn Anderson. And at various times, depending on the promotion and the era or the, the year, he was reported to be both a brother to the Andersons. He was reported sometimes billed as a, cousin he was also billed as Oli's nephew and you know it's funny when you start thinking of all these wrestlers my god they were all related together you know so <laughs> but Arn was a perfect example of an extension of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew because they did team together then and uh Arn looked the most like Oli I mean they, they looked like they could be real brothers they did you know, they had the, the same hairstyle and the beard, and uh, definitely. And and Arn was so good on the mic as well. He's To me, he's one of the last of the real throwback-type mat wrestlers that 
probably will never get the credit he deserves. But him and Rock or Ole were, they were great together. He was always, it seemed he was always put in an angle where he had to use his, his, his vocal skills. One of the examples I came up with was, I think it was in 1982, he was wrestling in Georgia. I think he was booking at that time too, but uh, he, got, he turned uh, Piper babyface. And just, you know, the, the interaction between the two of them was, was gold. Are you talking Oli now? Yes, Oli. Oh, Oli. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that we've touched on over the years, and we probably have on your show, you know, modern day fans don't realize that back before 1990, these wrestlers, they didn't have creative talent or script writers or story writers writing out pages of script for them to memorize on an interview these guys would come out, they'd know where they were in a particular program with an opponent or what was going on or what town they were going to be in, and they'd come out and they would, off the cuff, just spill it out. They knew their opponent, they knew the town, and, the, and they would give you, and they would give you interviews only two or three minutes long, which was long enough because... Oh, one of the things that I learned, and I mean, this is true. Any type of public speaking anyone does, I don't care whether you're in church or whether you're at a, a meeting, a banquet, you want somebody to come in, you want them to deliver a message that grabs you, you want them to give you the meat of the message, and you want them to get the hell off the stage. And you got to do this within usually no longer than five to seven minutes if you're at church or a meeting or whatever, because it's proven that if you go on and on and on and on, well, everybody in church is in the front row and they're sleeping and they're, they're in the back row right. sleeping. So the, the wrestlers of that era, they knew that they only had two or three minutes and they had to get their message out and they had to they had to, in that three minutes, they had to make you want to run, as they say, run to the box office and get a ticket to either see them beat someone or to see them get beat. And they had to do it so powerfully. And they were the consummate salesmen. Yes. And when you look at the guys, um, there were some that couldn't talk to save their life. So usually they would put a manager with them, and a, a, a mouthpiece that could do it. Or... They would come up with some gimmick where they couldn't talk. You know, I remember when when Gorilla Monsoon, you know, he was Gino Morelli for a lot of years. Nobody ever connected the dots when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes this monster from Manchuria. Manchuria, right. Gor Gorilla Monsoon. I mean, I, I when I was a kid in 1962 or three, whatever it was, I had to go get a map and try to figure out where Manchuria was. Bobby and, Davis found him naked. Yes. Yes, supposedly and, wading through a mountain stream, and he couldn't speak a lick, you know, because obviously right. Manchurians they only speak Manchurian, whatever that was. So, <laughs> you know, but that was the beauty of it. If a guy couldn't talk well, um, you put a manager with him, and then you had guys that were naturals, and Ole Anderson, Rock Rogowski, and let me tell you something. One of the things that Vern Gagne did, and a lot of people don't realize this and he'll never get credit for it but it's a fact along with the training that he would give them for the mat 
he would also work with them on microphone skills. He would work with them on whatever character he wanted them to be. Or if he wanted them to be a heel, he, he would work with them. He would have wrestlers work with them to how do you get this out? How do you spill this out? How do you get your point across? And of course, if you were a good guy, you know, you could be a little more laid back and be more mom's apple pie, kind of quiet. You know, I'm going to do my action in the ring and <coughs> boring, but it worked. So the select group of guys, if you go through the 60s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, oh man, we had some guys on the mic. And I can put guys like Ole Anderson, I'm seriously right up near the top tier of any list we want to make. And I'm not saying that just because he passed. I'm saying it because he knew how to get you to listen and how to get you to want to just go and see him win or see him lose. And that's maybe was what it was all about. And there were so many masterful talents on the microphones, you know, like Larry Hennig and Mad Dog Vashon and, and Ric Flair, of course, and Roddy Piper and, you know, you, you just, you had to be good well, to get speak, your point across. Speaking of uh, being good on the mic, it's part of what gets you, you know, we always talk about the lost art of believability yeah. where, you know, and, and we've had you on before and we've talked about it on the show, you know, the fans that were ready to jump the barricade, that that energy is just gone today. Um, I was hoping maybe you could hint at one of the, the things you can't talk about Ole Anderson's career this was Greenville, South Carolina, 1976. He gets attacked by a fan who's oh, yeah. wielding a knife and is cut and stabbed <laughs> up so badly he has to have surgery to reattach tendons yep. and get something like 100 stitches. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you kind of expand on that a little bit. That's, well, I mean, that's such a great, I, I hate to say great story, but you understand. No, exactly. It is, it, it is a great story and it deserves to be touched on because – most of the really good heels of the kayfabe era, um, if you talk to them, they will tell you that we realized that we were pushing buttons. We realized that we were antagonizing fans. We were we were insulting them, and that we were doing we were doing things bad to the people they liked in the ring. And many of them will tell you. There, it wasn't there. It was never wrestling that they feared. It was the fans, because many times, you know, Ole, the the thing you just talked about, that was a fact. Ole was sliced up, and that was you you pushed the buttons too far. And right. let's remind too that we didn't have the security available in those days. I saw some incidences in my time at live matches where. Um, that you could see that the heels were pushing the buttons a little bit too far and the fans were just, they were ready to jump the ring. We didn't have barriers around the ring like they do today. You, if you were in your ringside seat, a little bit ahead of you was the ring. And the wrestlers would fall out on the floor when they were, you know, falling out of the ring. They'd continue to battle. And honest to God, they'd be battling right at your foot tips in your chair. Um, Dick Beyer. The, or I'm sorry, I was thinking of Dr. X. Bill Miller, Dr. Bill Miller, who worked as Dr. X under a mask. He also worked as Mr. M here. Right. And he had some other masked identities too in other territories. He showed this, he told the story that one time while he was walking back after completely 
driving the fans completely rabid. He was walking back to the dressing room and one of the fans hit him with a like a two by four. And the two by four had a, a nail spike type Ooh. thing in it. Ooh. And Bill showed the hole. He had a hole in the top of his doggone head. And he was back getting attention. That's put that's pushing that button. And some of these guys, you know, they did it. They knew what the danger was. And it was a it was a, a was a part of the trade they had to work with. And some of them could get it off and not get attacked. Blackjack Mulligan, Bob Windham, when he was in New York, when he first became Mulligan, he got stabbed along the side of the leg. Some goofy fan came up and sliced him with a, a pen knife or whatever it was, and he required oh, a, a, z- a gazillion uh, stitches. I saw an accident about to happen one time, and since we're talking about this, I'll share it. Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon were really over his heels. And, you know, Mad Dog in his heel days, I mean, this guy, he there was nothing he wouldn't do. He was so vile, you know, to the fans. So him and Butcher are the tag champs. And they're wrestling against the Redheads, Billy Lions, Billy Red Lions, Red Bastine. Ultimate baby faces. They've had a couple of matches. And it was a feud that was really over. The fans got into it. You know, the old story, the Vashans cheated. They got disqualified. They got counted out. They saved their title. The the Redheads are going to get another chance. Hopefully we're not going to, you know. There was one match I was sitting in St. Paul, and my seats in St. Paul were right center stage of the ring. I was right in the middle of of the ring in my front row seat. So here we are in this tag match. And Mad Dog was tossed outside the ring, right onto the apron. And he, the Vashans had just been villainizing the redheads. Referee, you know, he was busy buying popcorn. He didn't see any of this. <laughs> and the fans were so upset. This guy, so I'm sitting right here, and this side of the ring, this fan got out of his seat, and you could see something in his hand. It obviously was a knife or a file or whatever the heck it was. And he was coming towards Mad Dog. Now, this was amazing because Bastine was in the middle of the ring working on Butcher. And he immediately, and Red talked about this later, he immediately saw the guy. He threw Butcher down and he went over and pretended he was going to kick Mad Dog. And he kind of put himself on top of the dog. And then the security guy, that was at the corner, they came over along with an usher and they grabbed this Nimrod and they hauled him, you know, yanking him out by his shoulders. Thank God. But he had a knife. And Red told me, oh, and then the fans got so upset, one of the fans actually tossed a chair over the rope, a ringside chair, tossed it into the ring, and it hit lions on the shoulder. Oh, shit. And in true story, you could see the bruise that appeared on Lion's shoulder as it slammed into him. But the thing was, you saw that was a moment where they they went out of character a little bit. And Red says, I knew we had to protect each other here. And this they, they, somebody was going to stab the dog. So they did take care of each other. Uh, Dr. X, Dick Beyer, the destroyer, he... Um, he talked about a couple of times when he, you know, this is back in the days when you could smoke in the arenas. 
and he had cigarettes that were put out on his shoulder as he's going by and they're burning. Oh, jeez. You know, and he says the fans were, we, we just, we worked the fans up and that was believability. Whether, you know, fans thought it was real or not, we all know that some fans thought, well, that was real. You know, that over there wasn't real when I saw that, but that was real. So they were able to suspend that disbelief, which is what the wrestlers wanted. And Ole Anderson was very good at that. And the Anderson formula, Gene, Lars, Ole, um, absolutely the best. And then, you know, after uh, Arn Anderson's teamed with him for a while, they held championships. And then it started to get where Ole was getting sort of more to the end of his career. He'd been in the business for you know, 23, 24, 25 years already. And uh, the Four Horsemen started to come about. So, and I know you guys know about that. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the founding members. You know, well, George, and, again, looking, uh, doing a little bit of research for the podcast, I went on wrestlingdata.com to see how many titles he had won. I thought they probably won a dozen. I counted 50 titles. Yeah. You know, a lot of them were tag team, but still, I mean, he won he won a number of singles titles. He won, I think he won the uh, the Florida Heavyweight Championship. He won that Midwest uh, Championship <laughs> a couple of times. But 50, I mean, in those days, you know, we've said it before, you're not going to get a title unless, unless a promoter thinks you can draw money. Well, and it's not only that. It's having the title and being able to draw the money because you're so bad. Somebody you want, you know, the fans are going to come to see somebody take it off of you. And a lot of times that's the reason a guy got a title because it was a draw, you know, and then there were guys that didn't need a title to draw and they could still get the fans to come out. I mean, just a unique era when, when you had these guys that were so good at, <laughs> at doing this and, you know, Oli was the, as you say, the founding member, he went and uh, he was the first one to form the four horsemen. Um, Arn Anderson will tell you that the name Four Horsemen actually came about totally by accident. They were the four of them together. And I think in the beginning it was Ole, Arn, Tully, and Ric Flair. Flair, right. Yeah. And Arn was talking on an interview, and I don't have the exact verbiage, but he was talking on an interview that some, you know, about how good they were, the four of them. And he made some reference to, um, you know, when have you ever seen four guys, uh, we're like the four horsemen of the apocalypse or something referenced like that. That was the title, four horsemen. And Arn said later, he said, that wasn't in our, in our plan, but it stuck. And they were the four horsemen. And then they added J.J. Dillon. And, you know, this was such a unique group, too, because you had – now you had five guys, all of them that could talk on the mic so well. And the interchanging they could do in tag teams and six mans. And I mean, it, it, in the 80s, that became a popular thing. The, the stables in wrestling, every, everybody had to have three or four or five guys in a stable. Of course, I go back to the six or the 70s when they called uh, Bobby Heenan and his group of wrestlers, Lanza, Duncan, and Stevens, and Bachwinkle, they called it the Bobby Heenan stable. And he yelled at Mean Gene. He said, I don't have a stable. A stable's for horses. This is the Bobby Heenan family. Family, right. You know. Yeah. 
but uh, yeah, it, it, it was really anybody that looks at wrestling in the 80s, um, the four horsemen were definitely a part of the NWA, WCW as well. well and even now you have the homages with the, uh, you know, the yep. WWE with the four horse women. Um, there's a, a, I say stable, more like a collection of yeah. jobbers, but um, guy, there's a group in, in AEW called the work horsemen. Cause they're the ones that are on TV getting beat every week. You know, at least we're here working. Um, you know, f- here we are 40 years later, better part of 40 years later. And it's still so beloved, especially with, uh, you know, all the, the, the NWO and DX and all these, you know, the, where they love having these, um, I want to say memorial anniversary shows, uh, you know, or, or just, you know, reunion shows or whatever. People still revere the horsemen so well. Um, but we, I want to kind of pivot because, you know, before we, we, we get talked the wrestling side, uh, Ole Anderson was also, I mean, he did so much behind the scenes with, with production and booking, especially the booking. Um, he was in, in Georgia and he may have been booking, but he was, he was part of the angle that saw Roddy Piper turn face, uh, 80 and 82, obviously the early, um, you know, the, the NWA and, and mid Atlantic and Crockett days, the early days of what would be WCW. Um, but I, I'm curious cause, uh, we talked about the horsemen. I, I like I said, I want to get to some of the booking side. Um, he was part of the, the angle. The first, he was the first one kicked out of the horsemen when they, they did the whole angle with kicking him out so they could bring Luger in. Um, uh, you know, obviously the story he wanted to, to go watch his son wrestle and everything, but, um, I, I'm curious, would that have, assuming we, we take the, uh, the, the, the son story out of it, um, would that have worked the way the way the fans reacted with Luger coming in and Ole getting kicked out and all? Would that have worked if he if Ole didn't have the reputation he did? Yeah, I think so. If if it would have been promoted the way it came off, yes. When we started the program tonight, I had made the comment that Ole Anderson was one of the greatest minds in professional wrestling. And let's take his wrestling out of it, his personal in-ring performance. Um, As a booker, as a promoter, now he never owned a company like some did, but he was the top dog in the company as far as creating the storylines and the angles and coming up with creative finishes that, you know, we know that wrestling's a soap opera and you get them there tonight, you got to give them a reason to come back next week or next month and so on. And that's how the story is. It's a soap opera. So Oli, here's where I think he gets a compliment. There are wrestlers, and there were more of these than there were minds in the business, good wrestling minds. Most of the wrestlers just got into the business. They wanted to make good money. They wanted to travel. They wanted to, you know, they'd strive to be the top dog or the top draw in the company or the territory they were in. But most of them didn't. They didn't care about the actual behind-the-scenes booking. They did what the promoters told them to do. The promoters said, we're going to do this, this, and this, and then you're going to do this, and okay, okay, okay. And it all worked. It all come off so beautifully as we all saw it unfold. But then you had that select group of guys that were the wrestlers that could create these, that had the, I, I guess I'm going to call it a vision, 
You could see the future. You could see what will draw. You can see that if I do this or we do that, wow, this is what's going to happen. And Ole was one of those guys. Now, I remember, boy, this goes back 30 years or better. Cowboy Bill Watts. We all know that when you talk about, when fans talk about Bill Watts, he, like Ole, is one of those guys that you can get fans that'll have all kinds of bad things to say about him. You know, he was a jerk. He was a gruffy son of a gun. He was hard to work with. It was his way or the highway. But when you look at Bill Watts, let's just stick with him for a second. Can we argue that he put together one of the greatest <laughs> wrestling territories of the 80s? Oh, late, absolutely. Of the 70s going into the 80s. Mid-South, the Mid-South. Yeah. Yeah. was as hot as it could be. And it was that way because of Bill Watts. He knew how to make something work. He tried to find the talent and get the talent to do what he knew could happen if they worked with him. And so, yeah, he was stubborn. He'd tell people, this is what we're going to do, and you're going to do this, and we'll get a payday. Bill Watts made the comment, and like I said, this goes back about 30, maybe 35 years ago. He said, in the wrestling business, now he's talking about for himself, in the wrestling business, he said, there are only four or five really great wrestling minds that I've come across. And this is Watts talking. He says, one of them is Vern Gagne. He says, another (laughs) one is Roy Shire out in San Francisco. He says, another one is Eddie Graham. And he said, another one is Ole Anderson. Yeah. He said, those guys, and, and of course, bear in mind that with his own ego, Watts was putting himself in this class. But I tell you what, when he made that comment, and like I say, all those years ago, I remember thinking, you know, Bill Watts is right. You, you look at these guys, they are all very much alike in their stubbornness. They're my way or the highway. But if you looked at their promotions, every one of them were better than any of the other promotions that were trying to run around them or in other parts of the country. And they also had promotions that a lot of the wrestlers always strived to get to. to, They wanted to be there. You know, I've talked about how everybody wanted to come to the AWA. It wasn't because Vern Gagne was the easiest guy in in the world to work with. Sometimes he could be just a bear. Some could consider him a jerk. But the bottom line was is that he had a territory that they made money in and that they had a a, a decent work schedule and they didn't have to wrestle all night, you know, every night of the week. And so they do what the boss says. And those guys I mentioned, if you looked at their territories, um, they, they were all of the same bold. They were all stubborn. They were ornery sometimes. You know, Ole, we're talking about him because he passed yesterday. But people talk about Ole. He was a grumpy old ornery bitter man. He was born bitter. He was, you know, he never had a good word to say. I'll tell you the Ole Anderson that I talked to, and only briefly. I didn't know him well. But I only talked with him briefly. And this was back in 1999 at the... uh, Hall of Fame, and it was in Newton, Iowa at the time, the George Tragos Luthes Wrestling Hall of Fame. I talked with Ole, 
And we talked about how he got into the business. And we talked about his days as a, the Minnesota wrecking crew and stuff. And Ole says, you know, and, and this was Ole because I like this about him. He didn't care if he hurt your feelings. He was always going to tell you the truth. He wasn't going to BS you. And I'll tell you what, in my lifetime at age 72, I would rather have those types of people around me that I'm going to know where I stand with them. Right. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. know I'm going to know what they are and I don't have to try is is this guy for real? Is he going to do this? Is he going to backstab me? Is he, with Oli, you never had that worry. If he thought you were a horse's patootie, he would tell you you're a horse's patootie. Okay? And he didn't care if he hurt your feelings. Like him or hate him, that made him a success. That made his promotion better. And believe it or not, that's the way Bill Watts was. Eddie Graham was that way. Roy Shire was that way. And Vern Gagne was that way. They, they, were, they were honest to your face. If they weren't going to use you, they told you, I can't use you. I, I can't put you over. You don't have this or you don't have that. He, didn't, he wasn't there to make friends with people. And he treated it, and all of those guys we just mentioned, you have to look at it in hindsight that they were in a business, and they were there to do business and to have their business be successful. So it was their way or the highway. But guess what, folks? They were successful. George, we have a, a somebody on our Dan and Benny page. His name is Matt Granahan. He's the, the king of Connecticut. He's actually been a guest on our show. And uh, he, uh, he posted something on the page that uh, he said he owned a trucking company that made him a fortune in a sport with no pension and countless broke former stars. Oli was an exception and an exceptional businessman. So he tr even transcended the professional wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you bring up something too, when you talk about in the wrestling business, you know, they didn't have insurance. They didn't have pensions. Um, it was really up to the guys to make the money they made and to Save do the best that they could with it. Mm -hmm. There were so many that were very resourceful. Maybe some could even say they were so tight they they squeaked because they didn't spend money. If they opened their wallet, you know, the George Washingtons were winking because of the light. I mean, but then there were there, there were those guys that um, they made a dollar and they spent two dollars. And I mean, I know this isn't this isn't a knock Ric Flair, but that's what happened to Ric Flair. That's exactly what Ric Flair made more money than any other professional wrestler in the 80s. Millions upon millions of dollars. But Ric Flair was really Ric Flair in real life. He he made he made a million, he spent two million. And he's broke. And God bless him, he's 75 years old now. I think and, yesterday uh, was his birthday, right? I think the other day it was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was in February here. And uh but he's 75 years old and he he's still he he's living he's living the dream, the Ric Flair character. And he does, and he's broke. I feel bad for him. But on the other hand, all of us we we have to do the best with whatever income we have to try to have the sure, best sure. life we can after we get to old age, retirement age, whatever it is. And uh some wrestlers were broke, 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 and uh, some some very well off. Oli, by all accounts, though, was was on the frugal side. 
from that oh, yeah. I've heard before. Yeah. Well, and that's what I said. You know, Ole was one of those guys that, you know, he didn't want to spend the money. Then, you know, and believe it or not, Vern Gagne was that way. Vern wasn't going to spend money, you know, frugal. What's the word? Frug, frugal? Frugally, frugal. yeah. Yeah. Try, you know, Crusher would say to Marty O'Neill, how do you say that word, Marty, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's um, Ole was – I've heard so many people – I I had one guy on my Facebook page this morning, and I actually deleted the guy. I deleted his post, and I sent him a message. He come on the post, and he had to actually make the comment that Ole Anderson was just a prick. And and I and I just looked at it and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to keep it on the page because I don't want my wrestling page to be that way. And it's a dumb comment. It just shows you're a moron that you got to say that. You didn't agree with Ole. That's cool. But Ole was a good guy. You know, Ole did. I got news for you. And I'll go back to the very beginning. If you took the three Anderson brothers out of the wrestling equation. For the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the landscape of wrestling would look a lot different. And then you look at all of the wrestlers. If you want to take Vern Gagne, uh, over 100, close to 150 wrestlers that he brought into the business. If you looked at all of them and you looked at how wrestling was because of all of them, how can you not give kudos to this guy? How can you not give kudos to Ole, to... Uh, uh, for all that he did for the business, and whether you agreed with him or not outside the ring or in the ring, he made you money. If I would have been a wrestler, I'd have wanted to be in the main event against Ole Anderson. I'd have wanted to wrestle Ole Anderson because Ole's going to make me money. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we we <clears throat> like Benny said, we had a, a great question from from Matt. I want to uh, kind of wrap up with. Um, a, another question that came from the page. This was uh, Javier Oist. He's a friend of the show. Been been on several times. Um, I think he George had knows brought Javier. up. Uh, what's that? No, I said I think George knows Javier. Oh, okay, I, he, he's he's on my page. I don't know him personally. Yeah. Okay, th- then you're you're familiar with him. The uh, he 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 wrote because um, I I was kind of wanting to get some input for the page. He said the. Uh, the infamous black scorpion idea was his was his idea. Um, not to mention he did the voice for the Shockmaster, which yep, is which of is. course you know a nice little fun anecdote. Um, he said with the black scorpion, what started out as a potentially intriguing <coughs> idea went nowhere fast. Uh, I guess you can't succeed at everything. Um, also interesting topic. He suggested we discuss uh, booking WCW. His inclination to push guys he'd work with in Georgia, you know, the Junkyard Dog, etc., over younger, more skilled wrestlers. Um, so, <laughs> but but he ended it with as you know, so kind of a, a wrap up. Um, we talked about his booking, you know, obviously hit and miss the the thought there. Uh, but he ended it with the adage and and how Air said it. Uh, we, we there's quotes from you know Jim Cornette. We've heard it before. Ole Anderson was, you know, and he said it lovingly, he was a cranky old bastard. Um, you know, so I, I'm kind of give your final thoughts there as we as we wrap up. Um, you know, you, you mentioned it on the page, and I thought that was a great segue. The the reputation he had as kind of the grumpy, cranky old man. How how much of that was the grumpy, cranky old man, and how much of that was just how good he was at being on TV? 
I think it's both, Dan. Um, Oli, I think the Oli we saw was the Oli that was. Oli was uh, a just he he was he was a matter of fact in your face guy that just did it the way he wanted to do it. If he disagreed with you, he told you. And he wasn't, you know, he didn't have to be polite to do it. And again, I told you, I wish that maybe more of us could be like that. We'd have, we'd have less backstabbing going on and stuff. You know, you mentioned about the, the scorpion gimmick or something that didn't go. We'd be foolish if we said that every single promoter during the course of their careers in, in a territory, that they never had a storyline or a gimmick that didn't go or didn't draw the way they thought it would or could. Because that, that wouldn't be fair. And I, I pointed out that when you talk about a business, any business, I don't care whether you're in banking, whether you're in trucking, whether you're in a promotion, whatever it is, your business plan, your the way you run your business, want your business to go, there are many times when, you know what, we got to change course here because right, right. something happened, something changed. And I remind people of this. Ford Motor Company, the car company, mm -hmm. it's been around for 125 years. Well, let's not forget that Ford Motor had to this day one of the biggest jokes. It's, it's a running joke when they created the 58 Edsel. You, you can, this is all true stuff. Yeah. They wanted to create a car that would fit between the Ford and the Mercury in price range. The reason that was done is that General Motors, the, the General Motors car company, had what they called a ladder. They had the entry-level Chevrolet, the next level Pontiac, then you'd go to Oldsmobile, then you'd have Buick, and then finally, if you were the elite, you got to the Cadillac. And they were priced accordingly so that there was a, a car for every, every pocketbook. Well, Ford, at the time, they had Ford, Mercury and Lincoln. And Henry Ford came up with the idea that we, if we could squeeze a car in between Ford and Mercury, what happened was it was a fantastic idea. They started this idea in 1955. It takes about two, three, four years for these productions to come about and you know the cars to come about. So they, they created it in 55, 1958 seven in the fall <clears throat> because they used to release the the new model year mm -hmm. in the fall of the year so the 58s were released in october of 57. well what happened was and this was unforeseen in 1955 america went into a recession and all of a sudden cars weren't selling and here they got this brand new edsel state-of-the-art well, it was a flop from the, because three years had passed and it was something they couldn't foresee at the time. They had to change course. They decided to phase the Edsel out. 59 was a plain Jane model of the previous. By 1960, the car was gone by November of, uh, of uh, 1959 for the 60 models. I think they only produced just a handful of 60s. So you got one, you got a, you got a car today, collector. But yeah. that was a failure. Does that mean that Henry Ford is a failure? No, because he's still one of the most successful automakers. And let me point out, Henry Ford filed bankruptcy three times. 
before the Ford became the car that changed America from horse-driven buggies. So that's what business is. And every single wrestling promotion. They had, and, and the other thing you have to remember, the wrestling promoters were working with volatile egos all the time. Every wrestler had an ego. If you didn't have an ego, you didn't belong in wrestling. You had to be cocky. You had to be arrogant. You had to be, you know, put me over this guy and I'm better than that guy. And Sometimes you'd start, a, start an angle, storyline, and for some reason, your guy got hurt. Or he just decided, hey, screw you. I'm going to go work for XYZ company, and he travels. We had, 30, we had 30 territories. They could go anywhere they wanted. Maybe they didn't like the winter. That's what Vern's problem was. He had guys that, that was when Vern drew the best from September through April. They were drawing great crowds. But you get to, to May, June, July, who the heck wants to go inside of a stuffy old auditorium in those days that wasn't air-conditioned? Want to go out on the lake. And, yeah, and yeah. sit in an auditorium when, you know, you've only got, and in Minnesota, trust me, you got a week of summer and it's back yeah, to school again. Solid so, week. So a lot of times the guys would say, I can't take the climate. Don Morocco, he comes to mind. He says, I loved, I loved working in the territory. I made good money, but I hated the weather. Don Morocco's from Hawaii. What do you expect? You know, he wants to be out surfing. Right. Another one, another one that never came to the AWA. And he didn't come here because of the weather. Actually, there were two of them. But the guy I'm going to tell you about, he would have been perfect for Vern Gagne's territory. <coughs> Bob Roop. Bob Roop was from Michigan. Absolutely a great, real wrestler, amateur background. He oh, was yeah. an Olympian. Yeah, the sugar hold. Sugar he, hold had, yeah. he had the, the great, he was a great heel. Vern asked him to come in. Come on up. And he would have been perfect because he fits right into that Ganya real wrestler mold. And Bob Roop said, I am not coming up there. I, I grew up in, in Michigan where it's cold 300 days <laughs> out of the year. I'm not coming to Minnesota where it's colder. And he wanted to be, you know, where Bob Roop wrestled. Look at his career. He wrestled in Florida. He wrestled in California. He wrestled in Texas. Where, where, what was the climate there? It was warm. Yeah. It was a perfect, another one that wouldn't come. And this one, I don't know, may surprise people. But Vern wanted to bring Jack Briscoe in. Jack Briscoe said, I'm not coming up there. Briscoe's from Oklahoma. He wrestled a lot in Texas and Florida and the Carolinas. You know that, again, warmer areas. So that's the reason that, you know, to say that a storyline didn't go somewhere, there is no wrestling promotion ever that can say that they had a successful run with never a, a faulty move or a failure or something that blew up in their face. A lot of times they just had to walk, you know, move from it and go on to the next, the next gimmick angle storyline. So I hope that answered your question. There was another guy uh, like that, George. He didn't go to the AWA, but uh, Austin Idol, um, yeah. he wrestled, he got a very, a pretty big push in New York in 1973, but he was from Tampa, Florida. He hated the winter. So he went back down to Florida. Yeah. Even and, though Vince Sr. said he was going to, he had plans for him. Yeah. Well, and, you know, he was a wrestler that invented himself after his uh, accident. His, he was in one of the Mike airplane McCord accidents. back then. Yeah, he was Mike McCord. I actually knew him when he was young, when he was Mike McCord. He, he wouldn't know me from Adam, but we had talked um, back in the Mike McCord days. But um, 
the guys, a lot of times they wanted to reinvent themselves and they'd go to a different territory. And you know how the territories worked. We, we talked about this. They all, we all had mainstays. And all the wrestlers that would come in would have storylines worked around the four or five or six guys that were here forever. So when, when your year, year and a half, two years were up, it's time to move on. We'll bring somebody new in, a new face, new blood. Look how the WWF did it with Bruno San Martino. Uh, yeah. Bruno was champion for seven and a half, almost eight years. Yeah. And every month in the garden, he was taking on some big old blowhard that was going to finally end his reign. And Bruno took him down one, 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 one at a time, you know. Yeah. But they were always bringing in the new faces. And that's what kept Bruno fresh by having those those new talents come in. So yeah, I know that's yeah. a little bit away from Ole Anderson. But I think we, we need to recognize, and it's very sad because, I mean, Ole's been away from the business for a lot of years now. And, yeah, he was a grumpy curmudgeon um i talked with him the one time he was very kind to me the one time i talked to him we sat at, at uh newton iowa we sat down on a couch and i we talked honest it was probably 45 minutes to an hour he was very cordial but he was very he, i could tell that Oli had that edge to him you know he'd say something like well the son of a bitch wasn't gonna do this or you know he, he just he had his opinions whether they were right or wrong and again, I just, I think when you look back at the success of wrestling and you look at what Ole brought to the business and yes, from the beginning, I saw a talent. <clears throat> Most of the guys that I saw Vern's wrestlers when they would enter the ring after training camp, there were some that I looked at and I go, oh, wow, this guy is boring or, oh my gosh, this guy needs a lot of work, you know? And then there were those that I looked at and I went, holy cow. You know, this guy's, this guy's good. He, he looks like he's been in the business five years. Ole did tell me a story, and I think he's mentioned this other places too. He said one of the things that Vern did in the training camp was that obviously he'd beat the crap out of you. He, he'd want you to, he'd want to know your commitment. That was the tough thing. He said he wanted to know you were going to stick with this. He says he never told me wrestling was a work. He says, I never knew wrestling wasn't real. And he said, the first night I go to the ring, I'm in the, I'm in the locker room. I'm ready for my debut. And he said, Vern came up to me and said, you're going to go over or you're not going to go over, whatever the story was. He, 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 was gonna, he wasn't going to go over. That was the deal. And, and Ole says, well, what do you mean I'm not going to go over? You're going to lose. And he says, that's how he broke it to us. But we were committed at that point, Ole says. And so I don't know if that was the case with Vern, with most of the guys he trained, but he was rough on him. He wanted you, to, he wanted to believe that you had what it took. And we know the story with Ric Flair. Ric Flair quit the camp. He was going to leave. He couldn't take it. And Vern went to his house. True story. Vern went to his house and practically yanked him out on the front lawn and said, you're not quitting. You're going to stick with this. Now get your behind back there. Well, imagine if Vern wouldn't have let Ric Flair, if didn't have the faith in him or the confidence in him. Imagine the landscape without the nature boy. Yeah. Vern had a good eye for talent, and so did Eddie Graham. Um, and Eddie had his trainers down there, Hiro Matsuda 
and uh, Larry Simon, who was Boris Malenko. Um, great. Uh, looking at our time here. Holy cow, we could just go on forever, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that's so weird, Benny. We, we've had... Yeah, we, we've had George on before. I don't think we've ever gone over time with you in the past. Not, not right? at once. Not no, no once. imagine that. Imagine that. I love wrestling so much, you guys. And, you know, it's been such a part of me. And like I say, last night I got the word that Ole passed. And uh, it, it really does. I feel it. When all of these guys, and I, I've had to live through literally hundreds of them in the past 25, 30, 40 years. And every one of them, they really do. It hurts me. Um, I just, I thank them for what they did, how well they did it. And many of them, I can say thank you for your friendship. Thank you for knowing me personally and accepting me as a friend. Um, so when I lose them, yeah, it's tough. It really is. It, it is like I told my wife, I said, I lost another family member today. Family member, yeah. Yeah. And, uh. So that's it. Ole Anderson, obviously, I, I have a great deal of respect for him. And absolutely, anybody can say what they want, him, want about him. But as a wrestler, as a booker, promoter, um, I think he's up in the elite group that Bill yeah, Watts yeah. put him in. I think he's definitely up there and deserves to be up there. And there were others. Bill didn't mention, you know, everybody. But the guys he mentioned, that man, they were alike. Yeah. And and Ole deserves that recognition. And to think about all the angles and the storylines that he left us, uh, yeah, I'll put up with a curmudgeon if if I could have that entertainment over again. So rest in peace, Ole Brock El Rogowski. Well, I can't can't end on a better thought than that. So uh, George, thank you so much for being here. Obviously, you know, wrestling time machine, you're you're all over, and we appreciate everything you had to say. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, sad to 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 have these kind of discussions, but it's good to also, like I said, remember the life and legacy of someone who had such a deep impact on the business and, and the sport as a whole. So for George Shire, for the player himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Sebastiano. Hopefully we don't have to do another episode like this in a long time. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good night, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.